Welcome to this episode of We Believe You, advocacy, resources, and healing around interpersonal trauma. Today, we have a special guest host. It is me. My name is Elizabeth Amoa Awua. I use she, her, hers pronouns, and I'm the Assistant Director of Educational Programs with the Women and Gender Advocacy Center. Some of my salient identities, I'm Black, I'm a cisgender woman, I'm queer, I'm a dog mom to a beautiful pupper named Bug, um, who I clearly love to death as I laugh saying that. <laughs> uh, I'm also a plant enthusiast, I'm a survivor of interpersonal violence, and a feminist. So today, we are interviewing Kenyette Tisha Barnes. Um, she's an international anti-human trafficking advocate and national co-founder of Hashtag Mute R. Kelly. So we hope you enjoy our episode. Thank you for being here with us, Kenyette. Thank you so much for having me. This is amazing. <laughs> so to get started, uh, please tell our listeners a little about you and some of your salient identities. So I'll start with my salient identities. I identify as a Black, cis, hetero, female. I am a mom to three amazing humans. I'm a partner to an amazing man, and I'm a daughter. I am a cousin. I am a friend. I am a lover of all things furry. And I'm just here to just give some light, to just give a little bit of myself to this topic, because I believe that for so many survivors, there is this feeling that I'm alone. No one understands this and that this horrible thing happened to me because of something wrong with me. And I'm here to dispel that myth and to give voice and to use my platform to allow other survivors to be amplified as well. And I am also a survivor as well. Yeah, thank you so, so much for being here again with us. We were really excited when we first started having conversations about bringing you because for several reasons, but one of the biggest being around your work with the Mute R. Kelly movement. Yes. When survivors speak out about their experience, their effort is often dismissed as cancel culture, which I know I've heard plenty of times around the Mute R. Kelly movement. And so what are your thoughts on cancel culture? And how do you respond to people who refer to the movement as cancel culture? So um, I did an interview, I don't remember which um, national network, I'm going to say maybe CNN, maybe, I could be wrong, could have been Fox. And someone mentioned, you know, well, what do you think about cancel culture? And I said, well, you know what, I'm the high priestess of cancel culture. So if you really want to kind of have a person and a target, you know, come see me, as my daughter says, come see me. And the reality is, I don't see it as cancel culture, I see it as accountability culture. We're not going after people who have no power. We're not going after people who might have said something off color. We're going after people who have used their power, some sort of social privilege. In this case, it was cis hetero masculine, toxic masculine privilege. And also the fact that this man made money, so he paid people. So people actually made money, understanding that this man was essentially a sexual predator. I don't think that cancel culture has, unfortunately, the ironically, the powerful are trying to sort of spin it. It is cancel culture. I think it's accountability culture. But I think what's happening is that the people who are calling for the cancellation of cancel culture are people who have historically benefited from a system of oppression, from a system of harming marginalized communities, women, queer, you know, the undocumented, people who did not have the ability to stand for themselves. These individuals that are now calling for the cancellation of cancel culture have benefited from, and they have harmed these people with impunity. And so do I think it's cancel culture? No, I think it's accountability culture. And I think the accountability part of it and the fact that these campaigns 
are so strategic and they have outcomes and they have, you know, consequences to this behavior. You know, we're now seeing people really pay the price for what has been swept under the rug for decades. So of course, you know, when the powerful are being held accountable, what do they do? They play victim. And I really see this call to cancel culture as just another example of powerful people throwing a tantrum because they cannot have their way. And we definitely saw some of that tantrum throwing. And I can't remember who was, was it Gail who was interviewing him? Oh, that deep breath come in there. <laughs> that was a tough interview. And, and it's funny you mentioned that interview because after that interview happened, I made a, a Twitter post about it. And I, I think I might have subsequently deleted the post, but it, it, it was to the extent of you just saw what all of his survivors endured behind closed doors. That was called a narcissistic rage. And those who work in mental health and understand those people with those disorders understand that's a narcissistic rage. When your idea of who you are is threatened, that's what you do. So I think the entire world now saw this man is dangerous. This man has the potential to do harm. But unfortunately, you had people who saw that as he's a victim and he's reacting out of a victim status. And that's unfortunately what you see when their power is being taken away. That's how they act. I personally don't think the interview was helpful. I gave some some words to a, a producer at CBS about it. And I just said, I don't think it was helpful. I think it sensationalized actual trauma, actual victimization to bring those young ladies on after that and just watch them just melt down. It was really sad to watch. It was really horrible to watch. And I do know that some of the survivors who saw it actually spoke out that it was very triggering to them because that is what he had done to them whenever they would, I guess, not do what he wanted. And so I don't think that that interview was helpful at all. I think it kind of gave us a window into what these young ladies endure, but I don't think it was very helpful at all. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's context I had not heard before, so I really appreciate that. Um, speaking of survivors, we have students, particularly survivors on campus, who are wanting to organize around accountability, around social justice issues, around interpersonal violence. Um, so what recommendations and advice would you have for them when they're trying to build momentum and organize around interpersonal violence, justice, accountability? So this is probably going to be an interesting answer that people probably will not expect to hear. But the first thing I'm going to say is you have to do your own healing. Getting into a space of activism, especially when you are attempting to address high profile assailants, offenders, it will trigger you. It will trigger your wounds. It will make you second guess your activism. And having that ability to speak to either a mental health professional, someone who has a background in trauma-informed therapy, um, a licensed clinical social work or any of that is going to be very helpful because you're going to have to have someone who can kind of reset you. And I used to use that term that I felt like throughout that campaign, I needed resets because what people didn't see in the Twitter feeds, on the documentary, on the different, is that you saw a woman that was dealing with her own trauma a woman who was reliving her own trauma and having to work through that and having that trauma, that 17 year old girl who was abused by child pornographer actually put on a global stage by individuals who just wanted to shut me up. And it could have worked if I didn't in the beginning say, no, I understand what this is. I, I get it. 
these people want me to stop talking. They want this to stop. If I didn't have power, if I didn't have the ability to shift that paradigm, they wouldn't be doing this. They would just ignore me. And I would say to anyone who's interested in this work, you have to make sure that you have a way to contextualize your trauma. A lot of people who get into this work are survivors. And unfortunately, that is what happens with this work. And the one thing I say, and I actually talk about this in a lecture, you know, that you have to translate that. And you have to be able to say, yes, I want to be an activist, but you also have to be able to see yourself as vulnerable. And I think a lot of people who get into this space as activists say, I am strong, I am powerful, you're holding a megaphone, you're in front of a crowd, people see you, you're yelling down at the status quo. But the reality is that you also have to be able to say, I am vulnerable, I am scared right now. I am out here in front of people that I do not know, and I am telling my stories, and I am demanding accountability, and I'm really scared. And it's okay to be scared. And that is the hardest thing that I think any of the young activists that I mentor, that is the hardest thing for them. It's okay to be scared. Doesn't matter. Yes, you are badass. Yes, you are standing in front of a crowd. Yes, it is powerful. It is liberating. You feel 10 feet tall when you're like five, five and 120 pounds. You feel big, but you also have to say, yes, I'm really, really scared right now. And you have to find ways to let that fear kind of be the catalyst, to be that fire, to keep this going, but to also understand that you got to take care of yourself. So that would be my first piece of advice for anyone who wants to do this kind of work, especially if it's a high profile figure. You got to make sure you're taking care of yourself and also strategy. Strategy is important. You have to understand, you know, what are the means of communication? Now we have social media. In the past, we had mass media for the most part, radio, television, print. Who are your major publications in your area who would be interested in the story? Begin cultivating relationships with these people. Begin cultivating other voices so that you can put together. One thing that we used to do back in the day, I know no one says that, but we would write op-eds. We would write op-eds. I was trying to find an op-ed I wrote in 98, and I can't find it because there was really no internet, right? And it was basically just about, you know, can people stop raping people? And that was literally what it was about. It was like, why can't you just stop? It's like the, the people who are harmed by this didn't deserve it. And then after they're harmed by it, then they're seen as the problem and that's not fair. So that was kind of my, you know, introduction to kind of using media to tell the story. Also, I would definitely say find organizations, groups. A lot of universities have women and gender studies departments. They have, you know, support groups that they hold. You might have people in the College of African-American Studies or, you know, some sort of an ethnic studies program that might be interested in partnering with you. What I found is like the social sciences. Like going into schools of sociology and social work and saying, hey, we need to talk about this from an anthropological perspective, from an ecological perspective. And then that's how you build your allies. And then from there, you really have to decide, do you want this to be a social media hit? Do you want to develop a kind of a Twitter strategy that at noon, everybody hit Twitter with this hashtag and get it to trend? And then now you're seeing this hashtag trending that could be anything like, you know, stand for whatever or stand against whatever or eat the patriarchy. I saw that happen once and everyone's like, whoa. 
And the thing about mass media is that they actually have social media departments. And that's where a lot of their news comes from, is what's trending on Twitter, what's trending on Instagram, what's happening now, it's TikTok. But using those platforms is very important when doing a strategy like this. The other thing too, and I'll, is vetting. You gotta vet it. You gotta vet it. It's like one of the things that I did when I decided to just hit this campaign like this is that R. Kelly doesn't need to be vetted. I mean, his behavior was so well known and so out there and there's so much evidence of it. And Jim DeRogatis did such an amazing job like back in the 90s of talking about him. But even with that, the vetting had to occur. So I would say you got to vet your people. You got to know what your strategy is. You got to take care of yourself. So those would be my three pieces of advice and a very long answer. (laughs) Each of those is so important into getting into this work. When you were talking about the ways that you have to take care of yourself, I was having memories from when I started doing this work not even realizing, basically going into the work, knowing things that had happened to friends or knowing things that had happened to me, but I wouldn't have labeled as sexual violence or wouldn't have labeled in a specific way. And so it wasn't until I got into this work and realized that these things actually fit the level of something like sexual assault or fit the level of being labeled relationship violence, right? And so I don't think it's only coming in and making sure that you are healing as you come in um, with the stuff you know, but being prepared to be unpacking things that you weren't even ready for. <laughs> right. It's like, you mean that your boyfriend can't come in the shower and just have sex with you when you say no? Yes, that's, you can't do that. A relationship doesn't give someone 100% access to your agency. Right. 100%. So a lot of what you said resonated. So if it was long, I don't know who just gets to decide that, but if it was, it was importantly long and touched on a lot of things that I think are really important to hear. Yeah. I also want to add, because you made me think of something that I learned when I was also new to this work. And so one of the tips I would add to, to what you were saying is not only doing the vetting, making, building partnerships, but also finding out what's already being done. Because what I've learned too, I was like, oh, I could do this really great initiative. But not to say that means you don't get involved, right? But then it's how can I amplify this voice? Or maybe it's done, but it's being done in a way that is exclusive of an identity that needs to be included in the conversation. So how can I lift the message or we can shift the message to actually do what we're wanting it to do, right? Right. So let me give you an example. Okay, so during the kind of apex of the Mutor Kelly campaign, there were certain high profile activist organizations and social media campaign uh, organizations, I believe what was Care To, Color of Change, um, Time's Up, and kind of in different spaces, they were like, we need to do something with this R. Kelly thing. And with their vetting process is how they found us. And they were like, wait a minute, there's an entire campaign centered around this. So let's go and see what we can do to partner with them. And let's see what we can do to amplify their work. So that was really helpful for us because there were people that were trying to kind of do, I called it game of the verbs, you know, mute is a verb. So it was like people would try cancel or drop or, you know, stop. And it's like, wait a minute. It's like a campaign that said, stop R. Kelly is probably going to get like a red flag from people who literally have been doing the work and have vetted us, myself. And I did a lot of the grassroots, I did all the grassroots organizing strategy for the Mutar Kelly campaign, including meeting with other local activists around the world. Actually, we were meeting with someone in Amsterdam at the uh, height of this. And so it's like, when you're doing that and you have that reach It's really difficult for someone to just show up from like Wichita, Kansas, making some t-shirts, 
saying stop R. Kelly. They're like, mm, we've never heard of you. You have no credibility. You've never done an activist campaign and you don't even really identify with the people who are harmed. So, you know, that happens. But what I would say is always vet, always understand your role as either uh, a survivor of it, an ally, you know, what are you? And you got to know what your role is. You know, don't come in centering. I mean, we were really clear about that when people wanted to try to come in. Well, maybe if you guys do this, maybe you should go away. <laughs> maybe you should go. <laughs> So I would say, you know, definitely vet to see what's out there. And um, the other side of that is when you build your campaign, you got to protect your brand. You got to protect your brand. Yeah. And I know I laughed at that, but you're 100% right. It's okay. <laughs> no, I laughed because it was just so direct and I loved it. But yeah, in reality, I think we get, especially when it comes to movements that, so this is a movement that disproportionately affected Black women and girls. Yes. And so in that regard, when people try to come in and tell black women and girls how to go about their efforts. It was really bad. There was, I'll tell you this one quick story. There was this young man. Oh, and I still have this email and I keep this email just because sometimes I just read it just to be like, wow, really? And I kind of followed up to see if he was doing anything else. Of course not. But he sent me an email to our Mute R. Kelly uh, account and was like, I just want you to know that I'm going to start the hashtag Stop R. Kelly and I really support your work, but I just wanted you to know for me. And I'm like, who are you? And that's really all that I said, who are you? And I wasn't being kind of flippant. I was like, no, seriously, who are you? You are a, you know, 20 something year old IT white guy from middle America who probably never heard of R. Kelly or his behavior, but you're seeing trends. You're seeing something trending and you want to monetize it. And I basically said, you know, that's pretty messed up. Mm. And I remember asking, so name three R. Kelly songs without Google. You know, where is R. Kelly from? What does the R stand for? <laughs> mm, yeah. So that does happen. You do, you, you know, whenever something is trending like that, whenever you kind of are doing any kind of high profile activism work, you got to always protect your brand. Yeah. And then last thing I'll say about it, and then we can go to our next one. Yeah. Your point about um, figuring out your like standpoint or like, your role in it it sounds like not to say there can't be allyship right but your example that's not allyship that is trying to do something else as opposed to uplifting the people who have experienced it and, and are really spearheading the movement so i hear you I appreciate that perspective right yeah so what i'll tell you is about allyship and this is important so one of the biggest allies to this movement and someone i definitely want to kind of give space to is a, a atlanta-based attorney his name is Gerald Griggs. So Gerald Griggs is a cis hetero black man married and kind of lived in that culture and understood the culture and became one of the most outspoken allies against R. Kelly in support of this movement. And he took a lot of heat for it. Mm. He took a lot of heat for it, but the one thing he says, I will never tell Kenyat what to do if she hits a legal line i'll let her know you might not want to do that because that hits a line but i would never tell her to stop people have actually reached out to him and said can you make her stop and he's like 
have you met her? <laughs> no, I can't make her stop. And I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to get myself cussed out. But, um, but there are ways to be allies in this space. And I think that people who want to get into the space, if you're not a member of that population, you got to learn allyship. And that's another kind of lecture that I do. It's an interesting conversation because usually someone gets offended. And it's like, it's not about being offended. It's, you know, I'll give you an example of one of the uh, lectures. It's like, if you are a cis hetero white man and you are walking into a space that's dealing with sexual violence as an ally, what is the first thing you think you want to do? And without thought, a young man will say, I want to protect her. And I say, well, how do you protect her? Well, I'll tell her not to walk alone. And I'm like, hmm, walking alone has never gotten anyone raped. Being drunk, alcohol has never raped anyone. So you're missing the point. And in being here, you're actually capitulating to toxic masculinity mm. because your focus is on her and not male culture. And without a doubt, somebody will get upset because it is like, I thought I was doing the right thing. And I'm like, no, if you still have cis hetero male friends who sexualize young women, you're not an ally. Your allyship starts in masculine spaces. And without a doubt, someone leaves. Um, the other one is racial. <laughs> the racial stuff is always kind of a, Mm -hmm. I'm an ally. And it's like, okay, so here's, here's your allyship. Do you ever talk about this at your family dinner? Well, I know my uncle just doesn't like it. So I avoid it. So you avoid the conversation in places where you can actually affect change. And you want to come into black spaces and tell black people what to do. So you're part of the problem too. So I say that to say that allyship is hard. <laughs> it's hard, hard work because you're like, wait a minute, I, you know, I, I'm consistently, whenever I'm in youth spaces, I'm consistently told, you know, you walk into a room and you demand power and you, you command power and you command agency. We can't do that. So by virtue of that, when you walk into a room, you have privilege over younger people and you can't say you understand. And that was like a wake up call for me. And so it's like, look, I am here to just give you what I know. But what I also do is I direct a lot of my issue to spaces of my peers, where I tell my male peers, why are you bothering 20 year old women? They don't like you and you scare them and you're probably being toxic. And my female peers, you know, you're capitulating to toxic masculinity when you're telling younger women not to wear bikinis and not to dress a certain way and not to twerk or whatever the concern is now. So that's allyship. And I say all that to say that there is a difference between allyship and centering. And that is something I think a lot of us are still agree with all of that. We're going to take a bit of a hard left here. <laughs> um, I just remember from your, or maybe not that far hard of a left, but we had a couple questions from your keynote um, that we really love responses to. So I just wanted to repeat some of those questions here for our listeners who weren't able to be at the keynote. So the first one being, what advice do you have for Black men who want to be allies to Black survivors? Ah, go into masculine spaces. That's it. 
I'm not interested in how many girls you can walk home from the train station. I'm not interested in how many times you can, you know, print a t-shirt that says, don't rape me. I don't care how many drug, you know, anecdotes you can make as an MIT, you know, chemistry student that can detect a date rape drug in a cocktail. I don't care. I don't care. Because the problem is not that there are date rape drugs in cocktails and that there are people who are dressing provocatively. The problem is, is that toxic masculinity does not allow for any accountability. So if you really want to impress me, you need to go into masculine spaces. You need to go into your fraternity houses. You need to go into your locker rooms. You need to go into the bar, the motorcycle club, your highly masculine spaces and say, stop. One of the things that I always tell this, my brother lives in Ohio, he lives in Cleveland. He is a member of this motorcycle club, all right? I don't always agree with everything they do, but you know, that's their thing. They, they have loud hogs and they ride in groups and whatever, but they have this clubhouse where people actually come, they rent it out for events. And the one thing he said is no R. Kelly music played here. And to me, that meant so much because he went into a space where people would say, wow, he could really get beat up by doing that. And he said, no, we're not playing that. There's so many other artists out there that we can play. We're not playing that because it sets a precedence. And it's like, that's what I think cis hetero men need to do. Stop talking about boys will be boys. When you are in these gaming groups, and that's something that I'm actually working with one of my mentings on kind of, organizing around gaming. Like I'm not a gamer. I still remember joysticks. So I'm not a gamer at all, but I am learning that in these gaming groups, a lot of these girls are literally being sexually harassed in these gaming groups because apparently they're online gaming groups and you could also hear and talk and communicate. And the moment a girl comes into the group, she's like attacked. And, you know, oh, you're stupid. You know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, take your shirt off. Show us your boobs. Let me see, you know, and things like that. And it's like, whoa. So you got to go into those spaces and say, yeah, man, that's that's not cool. So that's my advice to male allies. Start there. I think what people forget, and it's funny because, I mean, maybe not funny, but as I was rereading this question today, I realized, too, I think that question assumes that there's not Black men who are survivors. And so people forget they could be making a safer space for Black men who are survivors as well in their Black male spaces, but they forget they could be their friends and they just don't know. I was going to say that too. So the concern that I find about that is that, unfortunately, a lot of Black men primarily don't talk about their sexual violence. And while many Black men are survivors of violence by men, Many of them are victims of survivors by women. What we have done, unfortunately, and once again, a way in which patriarchy really hurts boys is instead of saying, yeah, when my 21-year-old babysitter made me do this to her at 13, that was sexual assault. Right. It's like, oh, man, you got a 21-year-old woman. Oh, yeah, that's amazing. She popped her cherry. That's and I think, once again... That's patriarchy. Mm. That's patriarchy that does that. And, you know, whenever I have those conversations, um, it gets really uncomfortable mm -hmm. for men. And unfortunately, we don't have those data. We don't have those data. And there are some, unfortunately, problematic male groups, um, men's rights advocates that will 
try to you know, give us numbers for those. Do you know how many men are actually raped as boys by women? And it's like, okay, but you guys also celebrate it. Mm -hmm. So you got to decide. So I think for a lot of men that deal with male sexual assault, if it's at the hands of a boy or an older boy or a man, then it's attack on his sexuality and his maleness. And if it's a woman, or an older girl, then it's that he's a stud, he's a Mac, he's the man, and it's kind of celebrated. So I think that, you know, sexual assault with boys needs a hard reset. Yes. I need to stop saying 100% that, but I just keep, I, I, that's it's all good. It's all good, but it needs a hard reset because the concern is, is that the only way that boys can be raped, males, cis males can be raped according to patriarchy is in correctional facilities. Mm -hmm. That's it. And anything that happens outside of that, either you wanted it or, you know, it's celebrated. And it's really unfair. It's really, really unfair. Yeah, thank you for adding that. Something else from last night that was asked, you mentioned that forgiveness isn't necessary for healing. Mm -hmm. Are there other myths about healing that we should think about or other methods of healing that we don't think about that we should be giving credit to? I think that we need to allow survivors to heal on their own timeline. I think that we have this arbitrary timeline of how long it takes someone to heal from sexual violence. And once that timeline has elapsed, then the person is just not healing. The person is wounded. The person is broken. The person is in some way weaponizing this victim status. And I think we need to we need a hard reset on that. You know, there are individuals who are in their 50s that are still unpacking childhood sexual violence. And it has affected them throughout their relationships and throughout their lives. And we need to make space for that. Um, the other myth is that real rape victims would go to the police. Real rape victims would seek law enforcement, you know, help. And real victims, you know, in some way, emote in a way that a victim should emote. You know, if you're being sexually assaulted, you should be screaming and yelling and fighting and thrashing. And your assailant should know that he's doing this against your will. And the reality is that that doesn't always happen. We do have, you know, in, in an encyclopedia of psychological responses to trauma that we still don't understand. And those kick in at the point of trauma. And if we have these social ideas of what victims in the moment should act like, if you don't do that, then it wasn't really rape. We see that a lot with, with gang rape, where the victim will just dissociate. And we don't know what dissociation looks like. And unfortunately, dissociation looks like consent. Um, the other thing too, going to law enforcement, especially for women of color, law enforcement is the worst place to go when it comes to sexual violence. In some cases, you're re-victimized. You're not believed. The questions about your sexual history come into play. Currently, less than 3% of sexual crimes end up in prosecution. And if the victim is a Black woman, that is reduced significantly. We currently have over 200,000 untested rape kits in this country. And many of those rape kits are Black women and girls and serial rapists. So there's a reason why we don't go to law enforcement. 
One, we're not going to be believed. Two, we're going to be re-victimized. If we go to trial, it's going to be humiliating. Then you're dealing with cross-examination of people who probably are equally as problematic as the people that they are defending. And for a lot of women and girls, it's just not worth it. So those are some of the myths that I think we really need to begin to debunk. You said that dissociation can look like consent, but they're not the same thing. Can you say more about what you mean by the dissociation can look like consent? Because dissociation, mental dissociation, and in no way am I um, stepping into the uh, space of a mental health professional, but mental dissociation, psychological dissociation, I want to be clear, I got to say that. (laughs) Psychological dissociation basically means that there is like this out-of-body experience where you're just not present. You're not fully present in the moment. It is thought of to be a coping mechanism for severe trauma. But what happens is in dissociation, you don't tend to have the psychomotor behavior that you would normally have. If you step on a nail, you're going to wince and you're going to do things because that hurt. If you have pain, you're going to move in a certain way. When you're dissociated, you might just lay there and do nothing. Hmm. You might literally just do nothing. And this becomes confusing, especially when we talk about things like running trains, which is unfortunately something that happens a lot in our urban uh, communities. A lot of boys are confused because the girl isn't fighting back. She isn't thrashing around. She isn't saying no. She's dissociated. And if she's dissociated, the only thing she wants is for it all to stop. And have you ever like got a shot and just like someone sticking a needle in your arm and you're not moving? It's like that's almost counterintuitive. You know, it's like, wait a minute, this hurts. I'm supposed to react. But you're literally just standing there and allowing it to happen because psychologically you realize that, you know, uh, just let it happen and it'll be over with soon. That's kind of what dissociation looks like. And when we talk about it in terms of sexual violence, if you're not thrashing around and screaming and hollering and saying stop, then it assumes you consented. And you hear that a lot with young boys who get called for a train and they show up thinking that this girl is down with it. And the reality is that she was totally dissociated before they got there. Mm. So they were complicit in committing gang rape, actually. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. Because I think um, what you're talking about speaks to a fundamental misunderstanding of what consent even looks like. Because if someone is not reacting, that is most definitely not consent. Because someone is not reacting negatively or because, again, to your point about how people think you're supposed to be responding a certain way if you don't want it, if you're not violently fighting back, Those two responses are not the only no responses. Exactly. Sometimes no responses, no. And that's the other thing when you talk about consent. And I kind of understood what you were saying by that. Um, If you're not saying yes, it's no. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of like how I raise my children. If you're not saying yes, then it's no. And if you have to think about it, it's no. If you have to guess, it's no. If the person isn't saying, come on, let's do this, it's no. And yes, even in consensual long-term relationships, you don't necessarily say, hey, can I do this right now? But that happens with an understanding that, hey, if I react this way, we're good. If I turn my body another way away from you, stop. Mm -hmm. But once again, that happens after a lot of conversation has happened in the beginning. And unfortunately, the way it's working with young people, those conversations are not happening. They're not happening. 
I want to move to another question about, I mean, we've been talking about a lot of heavy stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And so I'm curious, what inspires or motivates you to continue your work? I would say generally this work, but maybe more specifically too around the Mute R. Kelly movement. Um, I think the work is important. When I was younger, I wish this work was available. And although we had women like Sandra Sanchez and Nikki Giovanni and Angela Davis and people who were in Bell Hooks and people who were really kind of out there as Black feminists say, hey, you know, our agency matters. There wasn't a lot in my experience conversations around sexual violence and primarily intraracial sexual violence because there was more focus on not getting raped than getting raped. Mm. If someone did something to you, it was, well, why were you there? Why were you wearing that? Well, why were you in that grown man's face? Why did you lie about your age? Well, because I'm a kid and kids do stupid things. This is why they need adult supervision (laughs) because kids do things that are not good for them. Um, But that doesn't give them the right to be harmed. And I, I think this work is gonna be around for a long time at least until I transition off this plane. I hope that the young women and men that I'm training and, you know, non-binary, you know, beautiful people that I'm training will continue this mantle because it's necessary. I mean, patriarchy has been around for hundreds of years and it's not going to be dismantled in my lifetime. So yeah, I'll be doing this for quite a while. Heard that. We're always saying we're trying to work ourselves out of jobs. Uh, Will that happen in our lifetime? Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. All right. Well, we're about to head out. Is there anything else you'd like to say to our listeners before we go? Just thank you guys for, you know, giving space to me to kind of give you these words. I just want you all to just believe in you. Mentoring is so important. I think so often we do things in silos and there's so many wonderful people out there like myself and other people who would love to just give you a few moments of our time to talk about, you know, your ideas, your projects, you know, what you're working with. Keep learning, keep growing, you know, keep, you know, pushing against the status quo, keep challenging the status quo. I'm a big person that says if you're not, you know, upsetting your parents at least once a year, you're not doing it right. You know, you, you gotta, you know, I think my parents have just kind of been like, okay. I was going to say, I didn't have my parents listen to this podcast now. <laughs> so my parents are just like, look, just, just don't, just don't, <laughs> don't, don't do too much. Okay. We can't handle it. Yeah. So it's really cool. You know, the good thing is that my partner's parents think I'm like, this is a really, really sweet lady. And I'm like, let them think that they don't have social media. So, and they're just beautiful people from Antigua. They don't have social media and that's really sweet. And I think we should say that way. <laughs> It'll come out at like the next dinner. So I'm like, wait a minute. I thought I saw you. <laughs> well, let's talk about it for a second. But yeah, I just really want your listeners to just live in their authentic agency. You know, you're not going to always be for everyone. But as long as you are being your 100% truth, you're going to be okay. Well, thank you for being here with us, Kenya. And I know I've said thank you about a million times, but I really am. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Thank you. That's all for this episode of We Believe You advocacy, resources, and healing around interpersonal trauma. Please remember that the WGAC is here to provide support for all CSU students 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Again, to reach an advocate, you can call 970-492-4242. If you have feedback, thoughts, comments, questions, or want to be interviewed for the podcast, please email wgac at colostate.edu. 
That's W-G-A-C at C-O-L-O-S-T-A-T-E dot E-D-U. For more information about advocacy in the Women and Gender Advocacy Center, go to www.wgac.colostate.edu. You can also find the WGAC on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. A big thank you to Xavier Hadley for creating the music used in this podcast and to our partnership with KCSU here at Colorado State University. For more KCSU content, go to kcsufm.com. Thank you so much for listening.